Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading the Youth in Education podcast, and welcome to the Life Pedagogic. In this series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These podcasts will be exploratory, open discussions, inviting you into the speaker's worlds and encouraging challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. In the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter was the phrase on everybody's lips. Almost overnight, whole stratas of society were forced to think about the stubborn and enduring ways that structural racism affects the lives of non-white people. Among these myriad effects, issues in education, such as differential rates of permanent exclusion of black boys and the Eurocentric nature of the curriculum, abruptly became the object of discussion in homes across the country. But for some people, these issues of racial injustice in education are far from a recent realisation, or a subject for mere dinner party patter. Professor Gus John is one of the country's most stalwart and prominent campaigners on issues of racial inequality in education. Arriving in the UK from Grenada in the 1960s, he established one of the first supplementary schools for black children in Birmingham before a career as an academic and community organiser. He founded the George Padmore Institute and, in 1989, became Director of Education Services in Hackney, the first black person in the country to hold such a role. Having been named by FutureLearn as one of 12 inspirational black history pioneers, he today spends his time as an academic at the UCL Institute of Education, writing, organising and agitating for the still elusive goal of racial justice in education. Professor Gus John, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you very much. Wonderful to join you. Professor John, the Centre for Education and Youth are based in Hackney in London. So naturally, we were particularly horrified to hear about Child Q, a teenager in the local area who was strip searched by the police at school without parental consent or presence. As the former Director of Education Services in the area, how did you react to the news and how does it fit into the history of police and community relations in the area? The Child Q incident and, and, and reports of it were pretty horrifying um, for a number of reasons. One, the fact that uh, the teachers who examined the child and her, 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 her person and her belongings before they called the police did not believe her. Um, and escalated the matter by calling the police. Two, that once the police had arrived, they allowed the police to take the child away and 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 strip search her without th- their, them being present. Um, and when you consider that, well, first of all, we as parents don't send our children to school in order for them to be criminalized. And secondly, the law requires that the school ensures that there is a a responsible adult present if the police were going to were going to strip search that child um the 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 phrase in loco parentis in place of the parent is is understood and is there for a very clear reason um we have responsibility for our children we turn over that responsibility to schools when we send those children by law into school. We, we don't therefore expect schools to violate our children and their rights. Um, so by any measure, that school's actions were, were pretty appalling and indeed illegal. Um, and, 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 and what, the, what, what that incident called for 
uh, is uh, sanctions both against the police for for uh, uh, unlawful conduct and against the school for neglect and contravening all safeguarding regulations, let, let alone the wider issue of uh, both the police and 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 the schools contravention of the United Nations uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Professor John, the very first guest on our Life Pedagogic podcast was Sir Tim Brighouse, who recently published an account of the last half century of government policy on schools with Mick Waters titled About Our Schools. Now, despite the adulations the book is receiving across the sector, you actually wrote a really interesting critical review of it. Um, take us through where you think the book goes wrong. Um, well, I was appalled by the book, actually. Um, uh, it, it's a doorstopper of a, a document. It's um, 600 plus pages. Um, and it deals with, with uh, the history of education policy and practice in the country pretty much since the 1944 Education Act. Um, and, and yet, throughout that comprehensive study, it makes no mention of race. It makes no mention of the, 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 the advent uh, to the country of generations of black uh, young people of school age, including those born here, since their parents came and settled here and made Britain their home, it failed to even acknowledge that throughout those many decades, there have been a huge number of, of, of red flags that communities, black communities, have been, have been raising in relation to the education of children. First of all, we had in the 1960s and 70s way up into the 1980s, the scandal of disproportionate numbers of black children being sent to schools for the educationally subnormal. Um, more recently, uh, uh, Steve McQueen in, in, his, in his various films um, 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 did, did uh, 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 a very useful historical account of, 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 of that particular phenomenon. Um, we had in the 1970s people like uh, genetis, genetis, eugenicists like like um, um, uh, Cyril Burt, uh, um, uh, Hans Eysenck, Arthur Jensen, uh, many of them belonging to that school of uh, um, um, eugenics at UCL. Um, propounding theories about race and intelligence um, and, and suggesting that poor outcomes, poor schooling outcomes for black children could be explained by the lesser intelligence on account of them, on account of their race. Um, biological racism writ large, yeah? Uh, and and we, we had to struggle against that. We as parents, we as political activists, uh, uh, bodies such as the Institute of Race Relations and 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 and, and so on. No mention of any, any anything like that. No mention of the fact that the way in which the society has responded to the black presence, everything from immigration legislation, 
which became racialized more and more every decade, to Enoch Powell and his Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, to uh, that constant war, if you like, between the police and black young people, um, um, and, and this impact on that, in the impact of that on what goes on in schools, uh, no mention of any of this. Um, and 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 the, the 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 book took a rather monochrome approach to schooling and education in the society, as if all school children were white, all teachers and 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 school managers were white, and 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 as if education policy had no bearing whatsoever on uh, phenomena such as the overrepresentative number of black students being excluded from school year on year, um, lower schooling outcomes for children, uh, black Caribbean children, Pakistani children, Bangladeshi children, and, 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 and so on. And it just, it beggars belief that, that two eminent uh, educationalists, Tim Brickhouse himself used to be a chief education officer, for God's sake, Mick Waters used to be in charge of the, the qualifications and, 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 and curriculum authority. How could those two people sit and write 600 pages about education in the last 50 years and not mention any of the things that I have, that I have just outlined and more? Professor John, I'd like us now to take a deep dive into the annals of your memory. What's your very first memory of being in a school? My first memory of being in the school is in a, a small village school in my equally small village in the glorious island of Grenada. I entered school at the age of four. Um, I was told that I was very bright, and, and, and now that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and and um, uh, it was an interesting experience in that we 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 were in one large building like a like an aircraft hangar which was divided up not by partitions but by but by blackboards forming the shape of a v and 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 so on one side of 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 that v was one class on the other side another class and you you try to make yourself heard over the babble from either side um and 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 it 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 was like repeated like that throughout that whole hall so it was it was an open hall with many with many classes in it we still managed to learn quite a lot of the learning was by rote um um and and the the the, the critical thing in this story is that although in my case, for example, I came from a home where my father was totally functionally illiterate. My mother was semi-literate and a peasant farmer. They had high aspirations for us as, the, as their children. And those aspirations were mirrored by the, our teachers' expectations and ambitions for us. So parents could relax and know that their children were in safe hands because the teachers demanded that you worked hard, that you did not allow your background to determine how far you could go, that 
y- your parents just de- de- depended upon you um, to to lift them out of poverty and 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 and, and whatever you. So we were all on a path to success. Um, the only the only downside to all of that, of course, was that the 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 island was run by Britain, a colonial office administered by Britain. The the Queen was represented and still is today by a governor general. The education, the, the schooling and this curriculum and uh, assessment systems and so forth, um, all of those were 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 were, were patterned on what was happening in in, 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 in in Britain. So we didn't learn very much about uh, our own country. We learned a lot about Britain. We learned to recite poems by Wordsworth and um, recite Shakespeare and all of that kind of stuff. And we were not conscious of the fact that there were black people and people from the Caribbean indeed who were writers and novelists and and, 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 and and those sorts of people. You grew up learning a lot about the UK, Professor Gus John. Um, what was it that made you want to come over to England to study? Um, an accident, really. <laughs> an accident in this sense. Um, having left school in Grenada, um, I went to Trinidad to join a seminary. Uh, at the age of 17, I was en route to uh, becoming a Roman Catholic priest. So I joined this seminary in Trinidad and then was persuaded by the priests in Grenada and particularly by the bishop of, of, of that island to come to England to join a religious order. And so arriving uh, to Oxford University in the 1960s, Professor Gus John, I imagine it's not perhaps not the most hospitable place for a young black man at the time. What was your, what was your experience of it and how did you make the transition from um, the seminary to working on issues of racial justice as a community organiser? Well, I found Oxford itself a quite interesting place. I mean, um, the, the, the built environment is almost second to none. As a learning environment, I found it absolutely ghastly, I have to tell you. <laughs> it was bewildering. So I was a village boy from, uh, you know, a, a small island in the Caribbean, illiterate parents, pretty much, um, with a, 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 a developed sense of my own Africanness. Um, you know, that's one thing that my parents drummed into me. Um, and and so there I was in this elite institution with um, all of these people, mainly white, mainly middle class or upper class even, um, who had no understanding very much of colonialism or what life would be, would have been like for me and my parents in the uh, colonial uh, um, enclave of Grenada. Um, And and a whole range of cultural things which simply did not fit. Um, 
My recollection is that there were about 40 black students in the entire university at that time. And, and we met fairly regularly as a African and Caribbean society. Um, quite interesting meetings. Um, so as somebody from Grenada, I learned a lot about uh, uh, the other islands, largely through the students who were from those other islands, Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, there were people from the African continent. Um, and, and, and in one sense, we were the successors, if you like, of an earlier generation of people who had come and started, you know, the West Indian Students Union, uh, the League of Colored Peoples, etc., um, the 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 Pan African Congress that had its first meeting in in London in 1900, and then the Fifth Pan African Congress in Manchester in 1945, um, and of course, all of that was happening during a time when there was more and more agitation. In the Caribbean, it, it was a, it was a really explosive period in that sense, and um, it, it it gave me a sense of uh, security and belonging, because irrespective of what else was going on around us with that white majority, we were very clear about our ourselves, our own background, our own direction. Um, and and that that was uh, uh, e enormously motivating, um, and and it 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 gave it gave one a sense of 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 direction and purpose. And amid this kind of firmament, what would you say is the the, the composition of the black community in England at the time, and what's the kind of experience of a typical? Um, black young person, a typical black child going to school in England at that time? 1964 was two years after the government introduced its Commonwealth Immigrants Act of 1962. Just prior to that, um, there was a, 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 a massive uh, inflow of migrants from different parts of the Caribbean and indeed different parts of the Commonwealth because the government made it clear that the 1962 legislation would end people's automatic right to come to Britain as citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, which we were. I mean, it's only recently I got rid of my blue... Um, colonial passport, for example. Okay, so, so uh, all of a sudden, between 61 and the, when I came in 64, um, there was six and seven times more people coming from the Caribbean and elsewhere than there had been prior to 1961. And that period between 61 and 62 we became known as the beat the ban period. The ban was coming with the Commonwealth Immigration Act of 1962. Um, and people, people came from the various countries with all sorts of expectations, except, except the expectation that they would be plunged into 
visceral racism within the society. And the one thing I haven't said, which is quite important, is that um, amongst those coming to the country in that early period, late 60s, early 70s, sorry, late 50s, early 60s, etc., was a large number of children who had been left behind by parents who first came here and decided to put down roots, find accommodation, find work, etc., before they sent for their children. Um, and, and we underestimate the amount of trauma that that induced within the community, with people being uprooted from those who basically they saw as their parents. They may not have been their biological parents. They were coming to join biological parents with whom they had no emotional bonds. Um, and, and of course, there, there was a kind of chauvinism too, because when those children came over here, those who were born here and growing up here had a totally different attitude towards them, especially if they didn't share the same mother and father. Professor Gus John, could you tell us more about the phenomena of uh, young black children being tagged as educationally subnormal and how it influenced your work in setting up um, one of the very first supplementary schools in Birmingham? I, I think that is one of the saddest chapters in the history of black settlement in this country. And it was indicative of a number of systemic issues, yes? One was um, racism. And, and racism not just in terms of one white person um, being hostile to a black person. It was systemic in the sense that Britain didn't take bear any responsibility for how it had left the, the islands of the Caribbean. By that, I mean in terms of its, its, its infrastructures, education, health, um, all, of, all of those sorts of structural arrangements within any society. Um, and, and I mentioned earlier the, the uh, um, eugenicists and their belief in uh, race and intelligence and, 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 and so on. That had a major influence on how educational psychology was taught and what happened at the Institute of Psychiatry and so on and so forth. It, 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 it was many years before we saw black educational psychologists operating in the society. And so the work that Bernard Cord did um, in 1971, when he, on, on behalf of an organization that I belonged to and was a founding member of, the Caribbean Education and Community Workers Association, we used to meet fortnightly in Earl's Court at the West Indian Student Center. We discussed issues around schooling and education because we'd come from schools where children did exceptionally well. Um, and, and, and in fact, many of us who met in, 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 in the West Indian Student Center had been teachers back in the Caribbean very successful teachers. Um, 
some had been bank clerks, mm. some had been postmistresses, etc., etc., etc. So the, the 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 notion that somehow or other, by virtue of being poor and black, and and predominantly working class, we were incapable. And, and and not much could be expected of us, was a superimposition by Britain of its own class structure and what it expected of white working class people. It, it was years after I got here that white working class people started to go to university at all. And even now, we still hear about this person and that person being the first from the family to go to university. 70 years later, yeah? So, 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 so there was all of that stuff. And the erasure of people's language, culture, um, 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 spirituality, etc., that colonialism was about meant that the, 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 the British retained those notions of white superiority um, and saw us as 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 backward. It is as if you know, we 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 all knew nothing except how to walk behind a cow, um, or plant a banana tree or something. So it was class prejudice, race prejudice, uh, and a bigotry to do with race and class, which was unspeakable. So so it is against that background, and of course. There was also the issue of language, right? Um, um, when I was at Oxford, I worked with Caribbean families in the Jericho, sorry, in the Cowley and Blackbird Lees area, East Oxford, where there were uh, car plants, Morris and Austin. And they made these wonderful cars, Morris, Oxford, Austin, Cambridge, um, Austin 7, blah, 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 blah. Wonderful vehicles. The men typically worked in those, in those factories. Their wives or partners worked at the two teaching hospitals, the Churchill or the Radcliffe. And the children went to Oxford schools and they had a miserable time. So that although I was in a monastery study, <laughs> studying theology, I spent more time in Cowley and Blackbird Lees than I did in church. And, and that was because I was constantly doing advocacy and representation for parents who themselves didn't understand the, the English schooling system and didn't understand why the schools were treating the parent, their children in the way that they did. So if you spoke with a pronounced Jamaican accent, not just an accent, you spoke Jamaican English effectively, or Barbados, or whatever it is, and teachers couldn't understand that. They equated your use of your home language, which 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 they didn't identify as a language, with backwardness. And the test that they sent that they set reinforced that. So you would be asked questions about. Names of stuff, yeah. Um, you show a child, a Caribbean child, a tap, what we would call a tap in this country, what they would call a faucet 
in, 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 in New York or whatever. And you ask to describe or write down what that is. And the child would write a pipe. And because that that is that is what we 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 when you leave your house in Concord, because you don't have running water in your house, to go and catch water in the public square, you put your bucket under what is called a standpipe. Right? So these poor children were being confused because they were being told red red marks, red crosses were being put on their answers. And the answers were perfectly correct. The ignorance was with those who were assessing them. Yeah. So, 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 so all of that was going on. It, 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 it dented the children's confidence. It made them ashamed of who they were and what they brought with them from, 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 from the Caribbean in terms of culture and, 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 knowledge of artifacts and so on and so forth. And then, of course, at that time, very few, if any, teachers and people administering those tests had any notion of neurodiversity. So if a child was dyslexic or autistic or had ADHD or whatever, they, they were immediately thought of as having severe learning disabilities and, and, and therefore not worthy of the same attention as, as others. So very bright children were languishing in these wretched schools because their needs were not being properly assessed and met. Uh, and, and, and that went on for a very, very long time to the extent that Many parents were taking the children out of ESN schools in this country, sending them back to the Caribbean. And the children were doing particularly well in that environment, and they would come back here and go to university. Um, now, this, the, 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 the schooling system, in its arrogance, never felt that they needed to, to stop and take stock of what all of that was about. It's only through our activism and our agitation that we managed to bring about change. And that has remained the same throughout. So, as you said, I, I with others, started a supplementary school in Hansworth when I went to, went to work there for the Renamy Trust. I started, uh, as we didn't call it a supplementary school at the time, it was a, a Saturday school along Cowley Road in Oxford. In 1966, okay, a whole movement grew grew out of all of that. So we can legitimately talk about a black supplementary school movement. Now, what we did in those schools was fundamental to the psychological survival of many black children. Because schools weren't telling them anything about themselves, about their history, about their heritage. Um, and they were just being fed all of that white Eurocentric stuff. And, and, and meanwhile, we were bringing them into halls, etc., on a Saturday, teaching them about Marcus Garvey, teaching them about Stokely Carmichael, teaching them about K 
King and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and 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 and, and, and so on. Um, and and about how the oil fields workers organized themselves in the south of Trinidad and 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 and, and, and what have you. That's the only place they were hearing those things. If we don't if we don't attend to those things and simply leave it to schools, we end up having all of these deaths on the streets where young people are slaughtering one another as if there is no tomorrow. And speaking of that, Professor Gus John, um, you spent some time in Manchester as part of your career where you participated in the McDonald inquiry into racism and racial violence in Manchester schools. What brought about the inquiry and what were its findings? So what brought it about? In September of 1986, at Burnage High School in South Manchester, a young boy called Darren Colburn, white, working class, had a fight with a young Bangladeshi boy, same age, 14, whose name was Ahmed Iqbal Ullah. Ahmed had challenged Darren because he saw Darren racially abusing uh, year seven, first year, secondary um, Bangladeshi boys, smaller than himself. Remember, that's a period when the whole country had experienced a phenomenon called tacky bashing. If you looked any, as if you were anywhere remotely from the Indian subcontinent, you were considered to be a Paki. So Darren Colburn, as a young white kid, grew up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a city and, and in an environment where it was customary for Asian taxi drivers to be attacked, for Asian people to be sitting in their homes and having firebombs put through their letterboxes for no other reason than they were Asian. Where the police went around talking about nigger hunting. Okay? So, in, in that environment, he, as a young white boy, felt he was superior and could harass, physically abuse young Bangladeshi students. Ahmed, who was tall, um, confident, well-built, decided he was having none of that. And he challenged uh, this man, Darren. There was a fight, and Darren lost the fight. So he left the school with his tail between his legs, went home and was boasting to young kids in his neighborhood that next day he would go into school and he's going to kill Ahmed. He's going to stab him. The next day, true to his word, he packed a kitchen knife and went to school. Whoever approached each other first, I can't remember, but there was an altercation and he plunged the knife into Ahmed's stomach and then ran around the school shouting, I've killed a Paki, I've killed a Paki. The teachers were all flummoxed and bewildered and starting, started running around like headless chickens. It took, and of course, because this child was bleeding internally, nobody even imagined 
how serious his wound was. It took some time for him to get taken to A&E. And by the time he got to the hospital, they could not save him. He died of his injury. There was a shock across the whole Manchester community. Um, I was working in North Manchester at the time as an area vice principal of community education, Abraham Moss Center. And the Bangladeshi community, especially from the Longsight area and the Burnage area, decided that uh, Manchester City Council needed to do something about racism in schools. The police were doing their own investigation. So Manchester City Council commissioned Ian MacDonald, uh, a brilliant young white barrister, um, to chair a commission of inquiry into the circumstances surrounding Ahmed's murder. I had worked with MacDonald on a number of campaigns, etc. before then, um, including the New Cross fire in 1981. Um, and uh, he invited me to be one of his commissioners. So Ian MacDonald, myself, um, a colleague called Rina Vavnani, Pakistani um, academic, uh, and Lily Khan. Lily Khan was from Bangladesh, from Silet, um, and she had been a member of the Community Relations Commission. Uh, and we four, myself, MacDonald, and those two Asian women, um, sat for weeks receiving evidence from teachers, parents, students at the school, the school's management, officers from the education department, police, etc. cetera. Um, and then we wrote this book. We, we did a report for Manchester City Council, which they refused to publish. And they refused to publish it because they determined that what we had in the report was such that they were likely to be sued by, I don't know, whoever, the head teacher, this one, that one, the next one. And we thought that was complete nonsense, of course. So we determined that we would set up a printing, uh, a publishing house, Longsight Publishing, and we published the book ourselves and called it Murder in the Playground. A very comprehensive um, um, analysis, both of the circumstances of the murder, what happened after the child had been murdered, and particularly what had gone on before in terms of dealing with racism in schooling and racial violence in Manchester. Um, it was a hard-hitting book, and uh, the, the, the media, not untypically, decided to twist our message and suggest that it was anti-racism and anti-racist activity 
that killed the child. Um, what we were seeing is that there was a very, a very uh, um, uh, partisan approach to anti-racism, which suggested that um, we needed to protect black people, African, Asian, and that whites really were racist and irredeemable. And we condemned that effectively and, and talked about how anti-racist approaches should take account of issues to do with class, with gender, with with the with the dispossession of white working class people and all of that stuff, and the way in which their own psyche had been contaminated by racism and colonialism and the racist culture within the society. Now, the interesting thing about that is this, that it was the first major study of anti-racist approaches in education ever, right? We, we, we were doing the inquiry in the same year that the government, Thatcher government, was uh, consulting white papers or whatever on the 1988 Education Act, the most comprehensive review of education policy since the 1944 Education Act. Okay? And we said to Margaret Thatcher, we said to Kenneth Baker, who was the education secretary at the time, that the issues that we were highlighting in that report had application across the whole education and schooling service and needed to be taken seriously. And from that book, the government should be able to to, to extract and issue guidelines to schools on the whole issue of anti-racist education and schooling. Not only did Baker not want anything to do with the book, he refused to raise the matter in Parliament and he refused to allow MacDonald to place the book in the House of Commons Library. Professor John, in 1989, you were appointed as Hackney's first Director of Education. What was schooling and education in Hackney for pupils who were poor or for black families like at the time? What were your kind of priorities coming into that role? Was this an opportunity for you to exercise and deliver your vision of anti-racist practice in education? Interesting question. Um, the situation... <sighs> in schooling in that borough in 1989 was dire. Um, I had gone to Hackney from the Inner London Education Authority where I'd been an assistant education officer with responsibility for community education across the 12 London, Inner London boroughs. So I, and of course, I was also in charge of the youth service across London and the early years provision, including play centers in schools and so on and so forth. Um, 
soon after I was, I was appointed, I was asked by Her Majesty's Inspectorate, precursors of Ofsted, to go down to the Department for Education and receive a comprehensive briefing from them on every school in Hackney, primary and secondary. And um, I think we spent a, a full two days doing this, looking at their recent inspections, their past inspections, um, the development work that they were doing in, the, in individual schools and so on and so forth. And at the end of the exercise, they identified 13 schools which they said were failing and needed immediate attention. Um, so I was, <laughs> I was sent away with some homework. I had to go and devise a plan and come back to them with this plan to demonstrate how I was going to turn around those 13 failing schools. Um, one of the things I found, not just about those schools, but generally in the borough, was a sort of um, deterministic view amongst head teachers and, and the teaching profession more generally um, about what could be expected of children in that, in that, in that borough. In other words, one of the poorest boroughs in, in, in Europe, not just in England, in Europe at the time, um, many challenges. Um, we had refugee children coming into the borough practically every week. And on a Monday, coaches would arrive from wherever, Dover, Heathrow, or whatever, bringing people uh, for whom the, the borough needed to find accommodation and school places. But, but fundamentally, there was a view that um, there is a limit to what you, you could expect from working-class communities, white working-class communities, and that the, the, the language needs, the cultural differences, etc., of black children, especially if they were also refugees, were such that it was, it was wrong to expect excellence from Hackney schools. So I had the task not only of indicating what we were doing with that with those 13 identified by HMI, but how to change that culture and that culture culture of low expectations. Um, and it was a struggle. I had some um, effervescent encounters <laughs> with the body of head teachers in that in that borough. I won't go into the detail, but um, we had our full set of fisticuffs, if you know what I mean. Uh, and 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 in the end, in the end, I mean the borough. Okay, to begin with, the head teachers, pretty much about eighty percent of them, 
were picking fights with me, right? Uh, many of them, without any evidence, simply had this view that because I was black, because there had never been a black chief education officer or director of education in, 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 in Britain up to that point, um, I simply couldn't cut it. And, and they wanted to, they wanted to bring about a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so I had to contend with all of that stuff. Um, and then when I appointed senior black officers within the education directorate, they had similar problems. So it was, it was a constant battle. Every day was a battle. Well, Professor John, you must have made some difference because now Hackney has got some of the, the best performing state schools in the country, some of the best um, academic outcomes for people, premium disadvantaged peoples. Thinking about that now, what's your kind of, what are your reflections on anal an analysis on how those changes have come about in Hackney and what more do you think needs to be done in the borough? Well, let me say two things about that. Um... I do not believe that the only measure of education success is test and examination results. Um, I believe that the well-being of a community and the success of its young have got to be measured by other templates. Um, I am glad that, 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 that Hackney is doing considerably better. One of the bugbears I had, not just in relation to Hackney, but education and schooling um, in the country more generally, was that although as a result of government initiatives such as raising achievement, aim higher, and all those sorts of things. Although there was a general uplift in education standards and in students' attainment, nevertheless, young black people continued to bump along the bottom. So yes, there was, there was, there was growth and improvements. But the position, the status, the position of black students along that ladder was still very much near the bottom. And to a large extent, that still is the case in many, in many, in many parts of the country. Um, now, what concerns me is this, that even when you have children achieving high marks or whatever, high grades, going to universities, including Russell Group universities. I do not have a sense that they have any real understanding of who they are, um, what their history and background is, um, how they can contribute to making the experience of the group to which they belong better. 
In other words, it's very easy to cream off people who are successful and have them join that whole neo neoliberal rat race. Um, and yeah, they might become successful individuals in their own right. But but it does nothing at all for to, to lift the standards and the the positioning within the society of the group to which they belong. Um, and God forbid that we should have more of the types of Pretty Patel and 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 um, uh, Quateng and uh, the dreaded Kemi Badenoch and all of those sorts of people, because that's where that whole that's where that whole philosophy leads, in my view. Um, and 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 okay, I mean, <laughs> I don't expect everybody to be a revolutionary, right? At the same time, I do believe that we have to take account of what is happening in the society, where the fractures are, how systemic they have become, and what we need to do about it. And the, the one thing that concerns me is, especially in relation to this particular issue of student attainment and so on and so forth, the more black parents we have, Adopting this I, me, and myself, or I, me, and mine approach, so that I'm concerned about the individual progress of my particular child. And if in the school that I have chosen for that child, especially if I sold my house and got into debt to buy a school to put me in the catchment area to buy a house to put me in the catchment area of this particular school that Ofsted tells me is outstanding. If I then find that there are children in that school who are not focused on learning, uh, have got challenging behavior, etc., etc., I want the head teacher to come down on them like a ton of bricks because I've sacrificed too much to get my child into here so that they could have a meteoric rise up the ladder for this lot to be keeping them back. Now, I'm not just imagining this. I hear those arguments all the time. In 1999, I started this exclusions charity with three other people called the Communities Empowerment Network. And since 1999, We've been dealing with upwards of a thousand excluded young people every year, 90 plus percent of them black, right? And I hear parents saying, all this talk about the nil exclusion policy is rubbish because you, 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 you have to exclude those children. They don't want to learn. They're this, they're that, they're the other. So our own parents as black people are encouraging the, the structuralization of that two-tier system, whereby you have conformists and those who could bring schools high education results in, in the mainstream, and the rest you shunt into the direction of alternative provision, pupil referral units, and the rest of it.
Professor Gus John, there's two questions we always ask all of our guests on the Life Pedagogic, um, which I'm going to ask you now. Firstly, thinking back on your illustrious career, is there anything you've really changed your mind on in education over the course of your career? And if so, what do you think changed your mind on it? Um, I think for me, the most, the most important change really um, is in the belief that because we are required by law to send our children to school, um, government and schools are positively disposed towards our children. Um, I don't believe that to be the case um, um, anymore. Um, I questioned it a lot during the time that we were having our supplementary schools, etc., for the reason that however much we attempted to get mainstream schools to understand what we were doing in our supplementary schools and Saturday schools, and why even those children whom they thought were ineducable or whatever else it may be, were doing well when they were with us. And therefore, we should get together around the table, examine all of that, and try and bring about change within the mainstream school practices. Um, the schools were just not at all interested. So a whole movement has grown up in the society, very positive. Positive in the sense that it was a, a, a lifeline for so many black children who otherwise would have languished but for what we were doing in the supplementary school movement. And yet it's been sidelined totally, except, of course, in the work of some academics and so on, sidelined by mainstream schooling. Okay, so my my view really, especially since this um, program of academization and wanting to turn every school into academies, etc., 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 schooling is too important. The National Health Service is too important for anybody to want to either patently privatize it all or to bring in forms of privatization that don't look like privatization, as in academies, right? Especially when nobody is required to demonstrate whether you're, you know, uh, a, 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 a whole, um, I don't know, oligarch or whatever. Nobody is expected to demonstrate to us as parents what their credentials are for taking over the running of those places. Few of them comply with equality and human rights legislation. They don't deal with the requirements of the Equality Act 2010, for example. And I haven't a clue what, 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 what many of them feel about um, the struggle for racial equality and social justice in this society. And yet, 
we are required by law to continue sending our children to those places. And thinking of everything you were just saying, Professor Gus John, what are the two biggest changes you would like to see to the English education system? Oh, those are very simple. I would like to see the democratization of schooling where students are seen to have and can use their voice in determining how schools are run, the, the, the place they have in, 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 the, in the running and management of schools, the priorities that schools set, given what their future purpose must be in the society. And that's not just in terms of individual advancement and how much money you can make and whatever it is. How do you, how do you, how do you maintain a, a, a social order in a society where there's such injustice? How do you make sure that peace is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence, the, 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 the visible presence of justice within the society and of equity? Um, so, students' power, and then parents' power. No, parents, like students, are not a homogenous group. And, and as I said before, even within our own communities as black people, we have parents adopting some very neoliberal and backward attitudes towards children's learning and, and, uh, the rights. Um, so we need we need across the country independent groups of parents, especially of the most vulnerable in the schooling system, who could then form a national movement and challenge what education secretaries and the rest of them are doing. It's, 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 it's such an urgent need that should have been in place at least 50 years ago. So you have, why do we have these zero tolerance policies, et cetera, that schools are operating, which is at the, at the basis of what happened with child Q? Why, 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 why do we have, why do we have them? Why do we have schools determining that the length of a child's hair is enough to have him excluded? from school and from learning for three and five days. Or the fact that his mother can't buy black leather shoes because she's being feeding her children from a food bank cause him to be excluded for three and five days. Yeah? So we are in that position because over the years, head teaching unions, particularly, Teaching unions, particularly unions of head teachers, have lobbied government by saying, we want more power to exclude. We can't improve discipline unless we, unless we exclude, etc., etc., etc. And government has capitulated. Yeah? So when we look at the whole issue of academization, where that came from and where it is going, We've got, to, we've got to have a, a pretty long lens and get an understanding of how these things are intertwined. Academization, zero tolerance, um, 
uh, running schools like boot camps, uh, having a, an overly brutal, punitive approach to children and their infractions and all of that stuff. And and you know, and, and you can you can you can see it escalating, secure schools, um, antisocial behavior orders, um, harsher sentences for X, Y, and Z. That's the kind of society we're moving into. And what I am saying is that we need parents to stand up and say, having a, a fairer, more equitable, less brutal way of dealing with children and their development needs is not antithetical to the goal of having them get proper, higher examination results. As a matter of fact, the two things reinforce each other. So I want to see a massive movement, particularly of black parents all around the country, speaking with one voice and saying, you ain't going to do that to another generation of our children, not while we're alive. Even if, even if we've got to tear the whole bloody place apart. Professor Gus John, it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic. Thank you so much. Thank you. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.